0: Love, talk radio. Good afternoon, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'm here to uh, help you each week bring in new ideas and new strategies for uh, non-profits, profit companies, and uh, community organizations to build and expand broadband networks everywhere they need to be in America. One of the... Uh, things I have tried to do with this show is put a heavy emphasis on you know paying attention to policy issues coming out of Washington, coming out of our various state uh, legislatures and so forth, and how key policies have an impact on our ability as a nation to access broadband, to leverage broadband as a communication tool, to achieve great good in many different aspects, commercial, uh, public, you know, our democracy works. For how we use uh, use the technology. Uh, One of the biggest champions of um, public access to the internet, community access to the internet, and also to media in general has been uh, uh, an unfailing champion of the public interest, of the public good. And uh, since he has left the FCC, he has not ceased. effort to to bring about the uh, greater involvement of our communities into the uh, area of broadband and to the media. And so I'm very honored today to have the Commissioner here as my guest. So Commissioner Copps, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me to be on, Craig, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, visit with you and, uh, and your many listeners on Gigabit Nation.
0: Excellent. So let's start with, you obviously have not... Stopped being active since you have left the FCC. So you you retired in December. What have you been doing between then and now?
1: Well, I've been trying to go around and uh, keep the discussion going on the issues that were uh, a passion of mine at the FCC for the 10 plus years that I was there. Uh, That's the future of uh, media, uh, media democracy. Uh, my worries about media consolidation, my concern about the demise of investigative journalism, and uh, trying to get uh, a real national mission going for building out broadband the way uh, other nations are building it out, uh, making sure every person has access to the opportunity-creating tools of the 21st century and making sure that the Internet is open. So I've been giving speeches. I write a blog each month for the uh, Benton Foundation. Uh, I've uh, joined the boards of uh, a number of public uh, interest uh, groups, uh, Common Cause and Public Knowledge. And uh, uh, with regard to the uh, Common Cause, they are going to uh, jump in with both feet with regard to uh, media reform, media democracy, uh making sure we have a telecommunications and media environment that is uh, more competitive less controlled by a few big players and that better serves the information needs of America's uh, citizens so uh, we're just getting uh we're just getting that up and running I suspect uh, by early fall uh, I'll be kind of back in the road I spent a lot of time uh, out in the grassroots while I was at the FCC trying to explain what the FCC was doing to the American people and trying to uh, learn what the American people were thinking about the media and telecommunication environment that they uh, live in, and I aim to do uh, a lot more of that uh, in a couple of years just ahead.
0: So from your perspective, is the um, is the Internet and media, in essence, package now? I mean, are we doing ourselves a service if we try to separate the discussion of media from the discussion of the Internet?
1: No, you know, we've got one news news and information infrastructure, one media environment. A lot of people, when I uh, go off and start talking about public interest in the broadcast media and all will be tempted to say, well, he's just talking about radio and TV and, and cable, and uh, that's uh, so then and this is now, and new media is going to take care of all of that. But what we've got is a information system that's partly traditional media, partly new media. Most of the news that uh, we get, over 90% of it the experts tell us, still originates in the newspaper newsroom and in the broadcast uh uh, television newsroom it's just that there's so much less of it for reasons that we can uh, talk about in the next uh, hour primarily the excessive consolidation we've had in the private sector and the excessive neglect of uh, public interest that we've had in the uh uh public sectors so we need to look at it whole and when we look at broadband we have to understand the various dimensions of it if media is going to move over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, whatever it is, more and more of our radio and TV and our programming and our national conversation to uh, broadband. Then we have to think about its as public interest implications. We have to uh, uh, figure out uh, how that impacts our democratic dialogue. It has huge implications that go beyond just uh, uh, getting people hooked up uh, for our democracy.
0: Mm-hmm. So in the big picture... What are, in your mind, one or two of the biggest, I don't know, shortcomings that we as a nation have relative to the media environment, whether you look at broadband separately or you look at broadband and all of the rest of the media? What's what's holding us back or what's, you know, made things less than ideal? Well, I
1: I would say two things. I I think one is just the power of uh, big money and special interests in uh, Washington, D.C., Uh, I used to teach American history years and years ago, back in the 60s, before I came to Washington, D.C., and uh, paid particular attention to the uh, nefarious gilded age of the late 19th century. But I've got to tell you, uh, from the standpoint of money being in the driver's seat and money controlling uh, where policy goes, uh, that gilded age in the late 19th century doesn't have anything on what we are suffering from right now. So special interest... uh, The power of uh, big money is number one. Uh, Number two impediment is that we have not had a strategy or a sense of national mission to get this broadband built out to everybody in the United States of America for the uh, first eight years that I was at the administration from 2001 to 2009.
0: Now, today I'm actually – sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, I was just saying the second uh, problem uh, is that for for eight years we had no strategy for the building of broadband, for getting broadband out to the American people. We were uh, in the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. Their theory was uh, let the market do it. The market will find a way to build broadband out to the most remote rural areas, to the poorest uh, of the inner city, and uh, there was no need for government uh, incentives or programs to uh, move that along. And that was just a foolishness. That's not how we built infrastructure in this country of ours, going all the way back to the the beginning. The private sector, yes, always leads. It's got the money. It's got the expertise. But when we built roads and turnpikes and canals and bridges and regional railroads and transcontinental railroads and interstate highways and rural electricity, even plain old telephone service, it was always with public-private uh, uh, sectors working together with cooperation, and we fought about it and, and argued about it, but we found a way to get it done. The, uh, ex- the unusual part, the un-American part of it, uh, really, uh, was moving away from that scheme to, oh, just let the market do it and it'll take care of itself. When I went to the FCC in 2001, The United States was probably number two or three in the world in terms of broadband penetration. Uh, Then, because of this uh, ideological uh, uh, reaction against government policy uh, and government incentives, we slipped. And now we're, I don't know, 15th or 20th or 24th. It depends whose rankings you're reading, and we can quibble about those. But the bottom line is, uh, we're so far down; that's nowhere near where your country and my country should be. Uh, we should be, uh, we should be at the top, and we're not. There are a lot of countries that are doing better on broadband, and these are the tools of opportunity. These are the problem solvers of the 21st century. And if we're not leading the world, we're just uh, uh, we're just tying uh, tying ourselves in knots, and we'll never get out of all the serious problems that the country is facing right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So today's show, actually, I am down here in Chattanooga, uh, and Chattanooga has built its own uh, gigabit broadband network, and in fact, tomorrow, they're going to have basically a to teams of entrepreneurs and students who have been, over the summer, developing applications uh, to run over high-speed networks. And I've seen some of the previews, there are some really interesting applications that um that at the college level, and like I said at the entrepreneurial level, you know people in their twenties and thirties are building here uh you i gather uh i are a big advocate of community involvement in solving the broadband problem Absolutely. what 's your what 's your, vis- your view of Chattanooga and communities like Chattanooga that are taking the lead and putting the high speed networks into place?
1: Well, I have nothing but admiration for them because not only have they done a good job, but most of these communities, and I think there's 125 or 30 communities in the United States probably that have have done this, they've overcome tremendous obstacles and tremendous opposition to doing this. Uh, a lot of the big uh, telecommunications companies throw every roadblock that's conceivable into municipalities doing this. There's a lot of uh, big company uh, lobbyists and support from players like the American Legislative Exchange Council that are going around writing, uh, writing laws for state legislatures and suggesting laws for state legislatures to pass to put roadblocks in the way of municipalities doing that, to say, oh, no, this is only the private sector that can go in there. You can't do this. You can't allow municipal broadband. You can't regulate any of this stuff and this really the uh, kind of the untold story nationally uh, of what's happening with municipal broadband and community broadband it's wonderful that we have this kind of enthusiasm in places like uh, Chattanooga and Lafayette and so uh, Louisiana and so many 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 others people really taking the bit in their teeth and, and providing themselves with the telecommunications they need to grapple with the problems of the 21st century, we should be encouraging it. We should have a national policy that says, whoopee, uh, let's, let's go ahead and let's try different methods, let different communities do different things. Instead, we're having, in so many states right now, laws to cripple that kind of uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, and that's a crying shame and it's uh it's holding back not just communities it's holding back uh, all of us as citizens of this country
0: So how do we fight this? And I, and I want to address the question of how do we respond and how do we fight this in two levels. There is the practical implementation level at the community side, which is what Chattanooga represents. But there's also policies that are passed and advocated that have an effect on, you know, our access to the internet yeah. and communities' ability. So starting with at the grassroots level, how do communities take charge and do?
1: Well, I think they've uh, just got to take uh, the bit in their teeth and uh, you get a critical uh, mass of people and you start lobbying your uh, uh, local opinion leaders and your local leaders and uh, pressing for it on on, on the local level. And uh, hopefully you live in a uh, state where, uh, where there aren't tremendous legislative or regulatory obstacles to the accomplishment of that community build out of broadband. And and you go ahead now, on the national level. I think uh, when the Federal Communications Commission came up with its national broadband strategy a few years ago, it was uh, cognizant. We were cognizant uh, of municipal broadband and what it could do, and uh, uh, I certainly favor it. And so did uh, so did uh, most of my colleagues. But you know, we have to really see this as a as a central mission for the United States of America right now. We have this is the most important infrastructure of the early part of the 21st century. This country faces so many serious problems and there's not a one of those problems that does not have a broadband component as at least part of its resolution. You can be talking about Finding jobs and getting jobs. Well, you only get jobs nowadays uh, on the Internet. You, you don't stuff a resume into an envelope and send it into a Fortune 500 company because most of them, 80%, 90% of them just uh, wouldn't even look at that. You have to do it online. But it's not just uh, finding uh, uh, jobs. It's creating new jobs in the telecommunications sector if we had a real understanding of how important this is to our economy. But go through all the other litany of problems that the united states faces whether it's uh, educating ourselves better taking care of our health uh, better and in a more uh, 21st century fashion doing something about our crippling dependence on overseas energy doing something about the degradation of our climate doing something about opening the doors of equal opportunity Broadband is a part of the solution of every one of those problems, and we really need to wake up to that fact and understand that the rest of the world isn't going to wait for the United States to catch up. It's uh, it's moving ahead, and if we don't have the good sense to uh, move ahead ourselves, uh, then we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. So hats off to people like folks in Chattanooga who have done this and elsewhere who are, are pushing for it, uh, while the national leadership doesn't push hard enough. Uh, to uh, to make that a reality. So, uh, so I'm all for it, and uh, uh, I think we ought to be encouraging it. You know, the Commission recently modified its support universal service system, which supported plain old telephone service in far rural areas and and all of that, and is, a, is now including broadband in that. And that's an important step forward. But to think that just reforming universal service is somehow going to get broadband built out to every corner of this country is not, in my mind, realistic. The only way that's going to happen is to realize it's going to cost money to do it, to make a national commitment to do it based on the understanding that if we don't have the infrastructure of the 21st century, we're not going to solve the problems of the 21st century.
0: I look at things, you know, what's going on both with a lot of communities and nationally, and I feel like if you look if you're at the local level, you have, you know, your state legislature, you have your city council, some of the vehicles to influence policy, some there, even if you might think that you don't have a large influence over them, at least you can kind of reach out, and, figuratively speaking. When we look at national policy, go to you know Washington and go to some of these meetings and so forth. I mean that policy process is really far removed from ninety percent of the US geographically as much as anything else. How do we that you know that physical gap, that political gap yeah. How do people make things better? How do they influence national policy?
1: Well, they get it. They inform themselves about the issues and, and they get involved. And I don't know that I would make as uh, um, a clear a distinction between the problems at the local level and the national level as uh, uh, as some um, some may uh, have it. I think the power of the vested interests. As I was trying to say at the outset, at the local level and the state level. Uh, is immense and lobbying of the state legislatures, and a lot of these companies are getting accomplished at the state level what they haven't managed to get accomplished at the federal level. A lot of these uh, companies uh, are going around saying, well, your state's public utility commission or your public service commission, let's take them out of the business of regulation. Uh, let's make sure they don't get involved in the world of broadband or broadband access or the open Internet. And lots of states have passed laws like that. So uh, so the problem is not only on the federal level, it's on the uh, local and state uh, uh, legislature level too. As much power as money has right now, and I think the – extent and the power of money is, is uh, outrageous in this day and age i am still a believer that the grassroots counts when i was at the commission i spent most a lot of the uh, my effort in those 10 years of trying to get around the country and talking to people at the grassroots about problems about uh, for example the state of uh, media consolidation and what that meant in terms of the lack of local news and independent local programming that they were getting, and there was a tremendous response. You may recall that back in 2002 and 2003, shortly after I joined the Commission, uh, then FCC Chairman Michael Powell tried to uh, loosen our media ownership rules. There are rules about how many stations one company can own in a community. And the uh, will of the majority at the FCC uh, in the previous administration was that we should let uh, fewer companies buy up more and more stations. So you ended up with a company like Clear Channel controlling something like 1,200 radio stations in the United States, and you saw the demise of a lot of local stations and local newsrooms and uh, and, and all the rest. Uh, My colleague, uh, Jonathan Adelstein, and I traveled the country, uh, holding hearings, attending hearings. And in that uh, time period of 2002 and three, over 3 million people, 3 million people contacted the FCC and the Congress and said, we don't like these proposals to loosen the media ownership rules. We want more local uh, stations. We want uh, more diversity. We don't want this uh, program homogenization and big media companies uh Uh, uh, controlling uh, everything. That was kind of in the pre-Internet age. I mean, uh, if we had that kind of uh, effort now, instead of 3 million, you might have 10 or 15 million. People get the issue, in spite of the fact that media does such a terrible job of covering this issue or even talking about the issue. But there's a sense out there that something's wrong, and I think that sense is being force-fed right now by all of these Super PAC ads and negative ads and unaccountable, undisclosed ads on TV, and, and all people hear and see about the election is on these ads because uh, the news is so paltry about the issues of the uh, uh, of the campaign. So, uh, what it's going to take, and that, this is why I'm going back on the road. I spent I've been in Washington for almost 40 years now, over 40 years, and my conclusion maybe I'm a slow learner is that while some meaningful change can come from the top down, real change, the systemic uh, uh, kind of stuff that really changes the country, that comes from the grassroots. That comes from the bottom up. So what has to happen is you start this in communities. uh, You start talking to your leaders. You talk to your congresspeople when they're back home. You question them about it. You ask him about it. You tell them what you think about it. State representatives, local representatives, everybody, because everybody's a player, and uh, and you build on that. And that's what I'm going to be uh, trying to do. Uh, so steep though the odds may be, powerful as some of these huge companies are in the final analysis, I continue to have faith in the in the power of the people to uh to get things done. But it's difficult when media doesn't cover the issues, when investigative journalism is a shell of its former self, when uh when we have all this glitzy infotainment and we don't have really uh hard local news, uh it's hard for people to be informed. So thank goodness we've got uh, folks like Craig Settles and Gigabit Nation and and others who are doing their bit to try to uh, develop some uh, some positive uh, action out of all this. But uh, to me, there's uh, there's no larger uh, challenge facing the country than getting our news and information infrastructure right, because if we don't understand through the media what the problems are, how in the world are we going to have solutions to solve them? And the problems we face now, in my mind, there, there's no guaranteed happy outcome here for the United States of America. It's not, as I am done that our economy is going to go back to 6% unemployment, or we're going to find uh, new innovations to fuel another uh, uh, strong economic development like we had with telecommunications in the 90s uh, and all of that. So we're going to have to work hard as a country to understand the problems and understand solutions, and that's going to take uh, sounding the clarion call, and that's what I'm trying to do, and it's going to take... Citizens, too, to be perfectly fair, uh, taking the time, going to trouble to uh, uh, to inform themselves on the substance of the issues and to demand that their media uh, inform them about the issues.
0: So now let's take a look at this um, grassroots effort
1: um,
0: as an exercise in side, um the uh, – the, the, the local citizen enhanced by the Internet. So, you know, you and I are talking on a, a radio show that's big by the Internet. I'm a uh, you know, big national conglomerate, you know, that like a, a long line drive, all of these other major national talk shows. But the Internet enables the average person to create a radio show. The Internet, I saw the other day, the the equivalent of you know national broadcast TV, but it was all internet based. You know because every laptop has a uh, camera built in it. So they basically roped together three or four people that were part of an interview. You know like a talk show TV talk show, and but it was done across the internet. How do you see people using the internet to augment um, the traditional uh, media options?
1: Well, I think the potential is great. The reality uh, is uh, is something uh, else. Uh, there's a, a scholar named Matt Hinman who has written a lot uh, about this, and he did a study a uh, year or so ago looking at local news on the uh, uh, on the web, and he he demonstrates that in a typical market, about one half of one percent of page views go to local news sites. And the, he further demonstrates that online local news is more or less dominated by newspaper and television websites, the same consolidated folks that continue to control traditional media. So that web-native local news sites, and there are some wonderful examples of it, right today as we talk are attracting relatively – uh so few visitors that their traffic is sometimes impossible to even uh, reliably uh uh reliably uh measure so the potential of this technology is great uh there are low barriers no almost no barriers to access we can all sit down at the uh, keyboard of the computer and uh type something in and out it goes into the Uh, the cloud or the ethernet or everywhere uh, possible. But that doesn't mean people are getting uh, uh, heard, and it doesn't mean that uh, uh, automatically this is translating into wonderful benefits for the country. Right now, there is no model in the world of new media, and that's the Internet that I'm talking about, with the economic resources to replace what has been lost over the last 20 years in traditional media, and I, that may sound like a harsh statement, uh, but I believe it's uh, I believe it's true. The kind of journalism that this country needs, the kind of reporting it needs, costs money. You got to be able to say to a reporter, "All right, you've got a you've got an important story here. You want to write? You can go take a month or two months to write that story." There are not many newspapers or TV stations that are going to give any reporter that kind of uh, room to go out and create and investigate and write right now. It's all controlled so much by the bottom line. And it's changed so much over the last 30, 40 years. You know, time was back in the 50s, even the, I guess the 60s. Uh, you remember Bill Paley, who was the media mogul and CBS and a uh, wonderful businessman. Mm-hmm. But he also believed in the news. And one time he got all of his news people together, and he says, your job is to go get the news, and I don't want you to worry about the cost of you getting the news. I've got Jack Benny. I've got my entertainment programming. I'll take care of the money. You take care of the news. Now, if you can name me a CEO of one of these big media conglomerates right now who's going to get together and tell the reporters that, uh, (laughs) I would be... uh, uh, probably deed my house over to you. I just don't think uh, uh, I don't think that's the mentality now. So potential of new media is great if we get broadband out to everybody, if it's open, if we seek to make sure that it's serving the public interest. Now everybody says, well, you can't regulate the internet, and nobody's talking about regulating the internet. And it's a very different medium. But if Eventually, everything's going to move there. If our democratic dialogue, our small-d democratic civic dialogue is going to move there, if the radio stations, all the radio stations are going to eventually be there, and this is going to take a while, and our TV stations and everything else, then that becomes vested with importance to the public interest. And is that providing the kind of news and information infrastructure that the united states needs and that citizens need in order to make intelligent decisions for the future of our democracy that's the essence of self-government if it's going to succeed you have to have well-informed citizens so uh... we need to really take a hard look at this we need to understand how important this infrastructure is we need to see that that internet can spawn so much that's good it's already added new dimensions to the news Don't get me wrong, it's already had an impact. Uh, Right now, as you and I talk, it's developing wonderful stories. But if it's really going to be a replacement for traditional media, it's going to have to have a model to do that, and it doesn't, by and large, have a model to do that. There are some successful places on the Internet. You can probably name more of them than than I can. Uh, But filling that big vacuum... Left by the diminishment of traditional media, uh, that hadn't happened yet. Do you? Do you? Think
0: the speed of networks is part of the the resolution, right? We we have access to a lot of places. When cities like Chattanooga and Kansas City come out, Okay, well, we have a network. You know, we're going to be offered 10 gig service. You have a bunch of people right. on the sideline going, "Oh, well, who needs a gig? Who needs all that much speed?" But okay, all this media, video, and radio, and all of that's going to move to the internet. Is speed a a considerable element of this whole solution?
1: Of course it is. I mean, gee, we're only in the in the baby stages, the infant stages. I don't think we're even into the adolescence yet of the uh, uh, of the internet years. And look how our information needs and our data needs have uh, have grown. You know, once upon a time you were pretty, uh, you counted yourself pretty lucky if you had dial-up and then we moved to DSL. Gee whiz, wasn't that great. And uh, uh, who among us right now, just a few years later, is going to settle for dial-up or even DSL? And if we're serious about putting, uh, you know, health records on uh uh, on the internet, if we're serious about using bandwidth to do something about energy consumption and metering and monitoring uh, that you're gonna need speed and uh other countries i think uh probably understand this better i think uh I think there's an increased understanding of that in uh uh Washington and the at the uh uh, in various places now, but it, it takes more than an understanding. It takes a commitment of resources and money if you're going to do that. And I was oh, don't talk money, don't talk money. You know, we got a, we got this national debt and and all of that, and uh, uh, that's true. But I don't, I don't see how you have a prosperous future for the country if you don't build the infrastructure that you need in order to develop your economy and develop your, your people. So that's that kind of spending is an investment uh, in the future. And as I indicated before, we managed in the past to make those investments. Now we need to do that for uh, broadband uh, uh, in the 21st century. And by the way, as an aside, although I think it's an important aside, We need to take a look at our traditional infrastructure, too, the stuff that was built in previous generations, which we are allowing to uh, fall down and uh, uh, self-destruct. And uh, I'm talking about roads and bridges and public utilities and airports that don't work and railroads that don't work. All of that stuff uh, is important for the future of the economy. And repairing it... Is an investment in the country, and repairing it provides jobs. And I don't understand why we can't somehow get that through our our, our skulls and uh, realize that you, if you're going to harvest uh, uh, the gains of the 21st century, you got to uh, you got to plant the seeds and water the seeds and uh, and nourish it along uh, with a little tender love and care. And uh, that requires a sense of commitment and uh, mission on broadband that uh, I don't think we as a nation, or even we as a government, have uh, developed yet. I think uh, current administration is much more cognizant of the uh, uh, the needs uh, of broadband, the importance of broadband, than the the previous one was. But again, you can understand that, but then you've got to do something about it, and doing something about it demands uh, making a commitment of resources.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you've just joined up with Common Cause and uh, are going to be leading a, a particular initiative for them. Can you explain a little bit, number one, what does Common Cause do, but what are going to be some of your policy objectives in your new role with Common Cause?
1: Well, Common Cause is a citizen action group that's been in existence for a long time. It was started by the great uh, uh, John Gardner uh, uh, back in the late 60s, early 1970s, uh, and it's involved in a whole gamut of uh, issues uh, uh, for the public good. Right now it's kind of front and center on a lot of the uh political uh, uh, spending issues. It's talked a lot about what I've talked about today, uh, lobbying on the state and federal level and how that is retarding our uh, progress uh, as, as a country. Uh, it has uh, members in every state. It has chapters. It has uh, a meaningful presence in probably over th- in a number of states. would be well into the 30s, I think, So it has a grassroots infrastructure. So when I left the FCC and uh, took a little time to figure out, uh, did I want to completely retire or did I want to keep doing something about these issues, uh, I looked around for somebody who would have some some grassroots uh, power already there to build upon. And uh, the initiative that we're going to be starting is a uh, media and democracy reform initiative. It'll go to many of the issues we talked about today, getting broadband out to those who uh, need it most, keep the Internet open, uh, looking at the uh, impact of consolidation in the telecommunications world and in the media uh, world. Many of these things I've talked about today, so I'm delighted to see Common Cause uh, jumping in with both feet. It's an enormously uh, influential organization. Uh, There are other groups in town, public knowledge, free press. I don't want to start naming them all because then I'll leave some out. (laughs) But I think if all of these groups start uh, pulling together and working together uh, in making something happen at the grassroots so that something can happen in Washington... Uh, that's what gives me optimism. That's what gives me uh, some hope. So, uh, as I say, uh, uh, I'm going to be spending the next couple of years uh, trying to uh, trying to make a reality of that and getting around the country. You know, Chattanooga would probably be a cool place to uh, come and uh, visit and uh, just show off what uh, can be done in terms of municipalities taking their future in their own hands, and I think that's a uh, a message that the media and the American people uh, need to uh, understand more fully.
0: I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think that's you know this this event tomorrow kind of reflects that. I mean, I, from what I understand, there are several hundred people that are going to be attending tomorrow to see the the fruits of the summer program. It's brought eleven teams together from literally all over the U.S. and a couple of uh, uh, international locations as well. To create applications, and they run the gamut. I mean, like I said, I've seen some of them. Uh, there's, you know, public safety is addressed. Uh, retail operations is addressed. Uh, making our research institutions more efficient is, uh, is is the focus of another application. So there's a lot of um, publicity. Uh, coming here to Chattanooga tomorrow to look at what's being done. And yes, on the one hand, it's a very good promotion for the city. So obviously, you know, the, the chamber and all those interested in economic development locally will benefit. But I think the other part that you mentioned is that it allows the rest of the world to see examples, to see a model, to see some sort of path. Forward, and I think that's one of the things that's missing has been the you know the path. How do we get from here to there?
1: So well, that's why you know that's why this story is one that really merits coverage. Uh, nothing would make me happier than to pick up uh, the New York Times or Washington Post or uh, something in a couple of days and read about uh, this cool meeting that was held out in, in Chattanooga. I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Unfortunately, it should happen. Uh, I commend you for everything you're doing to try to, to uh, draw the public uh, spotlight there. But it again comes down to the fact that uh, you know we don't have the, we, we got so many reporters right now that are walking the streets in search of a job, rather than walking the beats in search of a story. They ought to be on that broadband beat in Chattanooga tomorrow, and telling that story around the country. That way, people would get an understanding of what's at stake here. They would understand what the obstacles. Uh, are that have been thrown in the way of a community trying to uh, design its own uh, communications uh, future. It's uh, it's a good and wonderful story, uh, but we have to have a media again that will uh, will do that. You know, we've always, if if I can digress just a second, uh, we've always had an appreciation in mm-hmm. this country of ours. Our leaders have. Uh, for the importance of news and information infrastructure, and I'm talking about going way back to the beginning. You go back and look at the words and the actions of people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, uh, who were presiding over this young know, this experiment in self-government, the likes of which the world had never seen, and they had an understanding. It's clear that the future of that experiment rested on an informed populace. So what did they do? They built post roads around the country. They subsidized newspapers, and most of the newspapers back then were pretty, pretty partisan. I don't know if you call them left and right, but they were they were pretty partisan. Uh, but they said, let, let them all go. People need to be informed if we're going to preserve this sense of self-government. And uh, actually, I think, doing all that I, I think employed more people than any other aspect of the of the government back in in uh, uh those days and uh after national defense was probably the biggest expenditure uh, of government that kind of continued and uh, when we got to the broadcast era and in the uh, in the last century and uh, what are we going to do with the public airwaves again we said well we'll let uh, uh companies and broadcasters have licenses to use them, but they've got to Serve the people. They've got to get news and information out. They've got to help our democracy uh, along. We've got to get uh, we've got to get back to that uh, right now and realize that uh, we have to have a news and information infrastructure that informs people. And we have to realize how much of that has been lost in the last generation. Uh, you start looking at all this media consolidation and the. 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and uh, uh, the quarterly report of the bottom line uh, uh, becoming the primary interest. You know, these big transactions and mergers, they always cost a lot of money. You got to finance them. A lot of them don't succeed, but you got to finance them. And to finance them, you look for corners to cut, and the places where too many stations cut was in news and information. I'm not indicting all stations here. I think there are a lot of broadcasters still around who. Uh, have that flame of the public interest burning in their uh breasts but it's harder and harder for them to do what they like to do in a world that's dominated by big players who are marching to the uh, tune of a different drummer so uh uh so we've got to uh, we got to get back to an approach that will uh encourage that but equally culpable to the developments in the private sector and that bottom line uh, uh methodology that they had, was the dereliction of the public sector, uh, dereliction of duty, I think, uh, again, over most of the past generation. Uh, the FCC, where I worked, seldom met a merger that it didn't like or didn't bless, might put a few conditions on one or two of them, but uh, basically, we encouraged that. Starting in the late 70s and then really picking up speed with President Reagan and uh, some of his successors, all of the public interest obligations that media had, that broadcasters had, were were just deleted, uh, were just written off the books. Uh, And now it's a case where the broadcaster comes in for a license. He basically sends in a postcard. He or she sends in a postcard, and they they get a license in return. It used to be that we had a set of guidelines, 12 or 14 things, that the commission looked for. So when you applied for a license, we had the little guidelines. Are you covering the local economy, local groups? Are you uh, uh, covering campaigns and, and all of that? And I'm not saying the FCC ever did a great job of uh, implementing that, but uh, even those guidelines are gone now, so there's almost nothing uh, in the way of specifics to ensure that we have the public interest, even though that term, public interest, appears in the telecommunications law some 112 times by my uh, informal accounts. So uh, so the public sector was uh, not just asleep at the switch, but too often in uh, tandem with special interests. And between those two forces, the uh, consolidation engendered by the private sector and the lack of interest in the public sector. Uh, I think that accounts for a lot, and that accounts for most of what ails our current news and information environment. And we need to start understanding that, and we need to be about the job of repairing that so that we have media, again, that serves the news and information needs of our people.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, this points to, again, the value of a grassroots effort, a grassroots effort that is supported by the internet and people's use of the internet, so in essence for every you know for every radio working in the public interest, you know if there are twenty or thirty you know internet stations or internet shows that are that are for every reporter that's actually you know working and covering stories, if there are you know call it twenty thirty citizen journalists. Who are supporting and expanding that reporter's coverage? This, you know, the same way with you know TV. When we get to a spot where more people have uh, or more communities have a good bit of work that they can then start producing uh, video or you know, in essence, home-based TV that augments and expands what's coming from local TV. Uh, stations. I mean, is that kind of how you would see an evolution, if you will? Well, I, yeah,
1: I think we have to use every uh, arrow in the in the quiver, everything we can uh, can think of. But we have to have a, a media environment that's receptive of uh, that, so that it gets some uh, currency and gets some uh, uh, some distribution. But I think you're you're so right that in this age of uh, the internet. Uh, that we ought to be able to mobilize people even more speedily, and that's going to be one of the uh, things we look at with this common cause effort that uh, you and I were talking about uh, just a few minutes ago. Because I think it's uh, a wonderful way uh, for people to uh, express an opinion from the grassroots and to get their uh, uh, to get their thoughts uh, across. So I am uh, I am. Um, very much encouraged by the potential of the uh, of the Internet, and I hope that we can uh, really use it to bring about some of these uh, results that I've talked about today. I think it can be a powerful, uh, powerful tool, but that, that doesn't mean uh, it alone is going to do that. We've got to use every arrow in that quiver. We've got to reinvigorate investigative journalism and traditional media because it's important, not just to traditional media, but to new media. Uh, We've got to do something about uh, getting more diversity into our uh, broadcast uh, and uh, and other media. Uh, I'm just writing a little op-ed piece for my monthly uh, Benton uh, blog uh, today talking about what a poor job we have done when it comes to minority and female ownership of our (laughs) media and telecommunications properties. We live in a country that is uh, now... Just about uh, one third uh, uh, minority population. Uh, yet <coughs> people of color own something like under three percent of uh, of our uh, full power commercial TV outlets. Uh, so our media is not reflecting the diversity of the country. It's not covering issues that are important to that one. It's like even one-third of a nation, remember Franklin Roosevelt talked about one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-nourished, ill-clad. Well, uh, the media acts now like we're going to have one-third of a nation uh, ill-informed uh, because it's not really giving them the news they want. When it covers minorities, it so often covers them in uh, stereotype or in... Uh, Uh, in caricature. And when it comes to ownership, we don't have adequate incentive programs to encourage uh, the ownership of uh, media outlets by minorities, by women, who are actually a majority of the population, by the way, but uh, they don't show up so much in that ownership. And I, I just happen to believe that diversity of programming and diversity of news coverage and diversity of viewpoint are all enormously affected by who owns a particular media outlet. To me, ownership matters. Uh, It's the old adage, who has the goal makes the rules. You know, that's pretty much where the media uh, and the country, I guess, seem to be these days. Who owns and operates a media outlet makes all the difference when it comes to what news is covered, what issues are teed up for discussion, who is asked to participate in a program watch uh, the cable news or uh, any news program and uh, when the talking heads have their guess on how many of them are minorities how many of them are women compared to, uh, uh, to men so this is another uh, aspect of the problem that's uh, very important and I'm not just talking about TV and radio and uh, cable and newspapers because I think it's pretty common knowledge right now that uh, The uh, ownership and managerial and employment statistics for Internet companies aren't breaking any new civil rights uh, or equal opportunity records uh, either. So this is something where we've got to have a little more focus if we're going to have the kind of diversity that a uh, credible news and information infrastructure uh, needs to have, the inclusiveness it needs to have to inform all of our citizens and to reflect all of our citizens' concerns.
0: This is, uh, you know, I mean, definitely a great point, and I think that if we wanted to leave our audience with, uh, a, a, you know, call it a step one in, in an attack plan or a response plan, you had mentioned that Common Cause has um, offices in various states. I think that maybe that might be, uh, you know, one of its great advantages is that it has somewhere local. Or have right. places that are local to folks, where they may want to take that as their first step, as their first initiative to attack uh, to tackle, you know, either yeah. state legislature or local legislation or what have you. Um, but but I can see where that would give people something local and something to say, okay, we can do that. We can at least take this yeah. one step. Well,
1: Let's what you forward. can also do, I think that's great. I think that is a, a wonderful uh, suggestion and. Uh, Uh, There are other groups, too, who uh, work nationally, Free Press and others that uh, are are worthy. But uh, I hope we'll all be working uh, uh, working in tandem. But another thing you can do uh, on the local level is when those folks are running for local office or state office or federal office and they're having a meeting back home, a town meeting or something like that, Uh, They need to know that these issues are of concern to the people. Uh, Seldom does legislation get passed unless there's pressure behind it and and the lawmakers think, well, somebody's going to appreciate this, somebody's going to say thank you uh, for it, somebody's going to show an interest. And I remember that summer of 2003 that you and I were talking about earlier when all those people were writing in about the ownership rules and how we shouldn't be loosening them. There were a lot of members of Congress who came back after being home that summer who told me, you know, I couldn't believe it when I went to town hall meeting back home, but people were raising their hands and asking about media ownership. I didn't know that was really an issue back home. And that's when the Senate voted twice then to overturn those uh, rules. The House uh, uh, voted a couple times, and then the the courts uh, overturned them and sent them back. But it just shows uh, it shows that it starts at the grassroots. It shows what can be done on the local level. And uh, that's what kind of gives me some uh, some hope for the future and our ability to make progress here.
0: Do you believe, I mean, I don't want to put you in a, in a hot spot or anything, but uh, since you've left, there are two new uh, commissioners on the on the FCC. Do you feel that your successors, Will be as vocal as you are in the in the public interest. And I should warn you that we only got about four minutes. So, but well, you know, I hope
1: if- so. Uh, well, one of them, uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel, used to be my uh, chief of staff, senior legal advisor at the uh, FCC. So, uh, 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 I think she knows where uh, I came from, and she was working alongside me. So, uh, uh, so uh, I hope so. But again. Although the FCC is an independent agency and the commissioners don't run for office and all of that, they are bound to listen to the people. They they have responsibility to listen to the people, and the people should not be shy or reticent about communicating with them. That had a little effect, as I was saying, back years ago in 2003, but uh, uh, it had some effect when we were doing the open Internet, the, the inelegantly phrased network neutrality uh, rules. they didn't go as far as I would have liked a couple of years ago, but at least we made a, a step forward. A lot that, a lot of that came from the Internet, came from the grassroots, came from and well, That's what we've got to uh, uh, gear up uh, here again, and that's when you'll find an FCC that gets uh, a little more interested in these uh, issues. It's not just Universal service and broadband—it's not just uh, uh, all of these uh, micro issues uh, and all of that. There are these larger issues that undergird all of that, and that are related to all of that, that the commission is, has a responsibility to tee up for the uh, American people to go out and talk to them about, and educate themselves. So it's a it's a joint project as the commission goes on the road. We educate, they educate themselves, and they also uh, help the people understand what the FCC is doing and and what issues are up for consideration. You know, the big companies, they know. I mean, they can can subscribe to the uh, Federal Register. They have lobbyists plying the halls of the uh, FCC, but uh, people in the uh, Native Americans and the reservations or people in the, Uh, inner city people in the disabilities communities don't have all of those resources available to them. They don't just automatically know, hey, this is coming up for a vote at the FCC, and before they know what's coming up for a vote, something's passed that may be inimical to their better interests. So the FCC has a responsibility to go out before uh, they vote and talk about these things, and uh, that's what I pushed for 10 years from inside uh, with uh, only some uh, limited success. Uh, but I think we need to keep pushing uh, for it and bringing these issues now uh, uh, through other organizations to the attention of the American people.
0: Excellent. Well, we're going to have to uh, wrap up here. Uh, I want to thank you very much for being our guest today. There is a lot of positive great stuff that you have put out there. I think there's a lot of information that people can take an action on. And um, you know, people will be, I'm sure, downloading this this interview to, you know, get some, you know, idea of how they can influence process. And so, you know, thank you very much again. This is your second time, actually of being my guest. And I, I appreciate it every time that you do uh, make time uh, for my audience. It, it really is uh, helpful in, in getting the word out.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and the hour went by very fast, but if there's one message to leave, it is that people can make a difference and only people are going to make a difference. So uh, let's all be activists in this.
0: Excellent. And I want to thank our audience today for uh, listening to another great show. Um, I'm going to have uh, some coverage tomorrow on the Big demo uh, exercise that's happening here in Chattanooga. Uh, some of my interviews with uh, the, the participants, the people with new applications, uh, will all be presented. Uh, Friday, I expect to be on. A member of the uh, city of Chattanooga who will talk about wireless network here that runs on top of the Fiber network. So uh, Gigabit Nation is uh, definitely doing it all here, live from Chattanooga, and happy to be here. So, you know, stay with us. Uh thanks to our sponsor team Fischel, a great network construction company uh, who's our sponsor this month uh, thank you for your support and everyone have a great day and we'll be back with you tomorrow take care.